Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome along to the Rocky Road Boxing Podcast with me, your host, Kevin Byrne. We're here today to discuss a new book, Fighting to Find Peace, by retired Belfast fighter and boxing encyclopedia, Eamon McCauley. In Eamon's own words, it's a book about growing up in the 1970s and living in the worst hit part of the north of Ireland during the Troubles. It's about his dad, Patsy Coco McCauley, being one of the hardest men who ever came to Ireland. It's about his family history in boxing, including his granddad, Harry McCauley, a professional boxing champion, and his uncle, Rinty Monaghan, who was flyweight champion of the world. It's about his boxing career, amateur and professional. It's about failing to reach his potential and ultimately redemption. It's about being a doorman for 30 years and counting. It's about mental health and low self-esteem. No, this is not just a boxing book. It's the story of his life. To discuss it all today, we're joined by the man himself, Eamon McCauley, and his friend, four-weight Irish champion and international man of mystery, Jim Rock. Hi, lads. Hello, Kevin. Lovely to be here. Good man, Kevin. You're very welcome. Uh, lads, you would have seen each other a couple of weeks ago at the launch of your book, Eamon. And how did it all go? Oh, it was marvellous. Absolutely marvellous. Lovely crowd. And uh, I was blew away. Uh, and the book's going really well. It's selling really well. So I'm excited about that. Have you got any advice for Jim Rock when he sits down to write his memoirs? Uh, <laughs> uh, Jim could write a good story. Four-weight world champion, a four-weight Irish champion, IBC world champion, uh, a great fighter. I've seen him box a few times and I'm sure he's a lot to say. There's a good book in everyone. But the, the thing about my book is, and I'm happy to say, my dad, Coco, is the star of the show and that's how it should be. I'm happy for that. Um, I've read about your inspiration like you, for, for writing the book in terms of just, just writing. You've always taken an interest in writing down your thoughts, writing down lists. Uh, you've penned articles. You're, you know, a boxing historian. Um, but there was some, there was some pull, uh, like you say, about your dad that you wanted to document the story. And I suppose who, who better? Yes, that's right. My dad had a very, very brutal life. Uh, he was a hard one. Uh, his uh, mother was Randy Monaghan's. Uh, eldest sibling. His father was a professional pugilist from Portrush. So the boxing came from both sides of the family. But my father was known more for his exploits outside the ring than inside it. He uh, fought with the British Army. They couldn't get a paratrooper to beat him. So they flew a regimental boxing champion from Germany over to challenge my dad. And he's Judas, my dad, be a knuckle duster. But my dad knocked him out and left him in a heap. And that's when I found the, the knuckle duster. He fought with the IRA. He knocked Manny Alem out. He uh, he was shot three times. Uh, he was blew up. He killed a fella in London in a street fight. He had battle wounds, knife wounds. I mean, you know, real tough, brutal, brutal life he had. But it was a compassionate side to Coco too. It was a lot of good things he'd done. And it was an awful lot of people loved him. Did you, Car- did character you- in our community. Absolutely. Had you ever heard stories about him before, Jim? Yeah, I heard stories about Coco McCauley and I never knew Coco McCauley. It was his dad until the book launch, until he said it. I never put the two of them together. But Mike Callahan, who was my manager, um, and Eamon, Eamon would know him. But 
Mike Callahan, every day after training in the gym in Belfast, I would go up to Mike Callahan's house in Willowbank Gardens and I'd his wife would make me, his wife Sheila would make me dinner and I'd sit there and for about two or three hours, he would go on and tell stories about several people. But Coco McCauley, his name came up loads of times. So I knew his name, but I didn't put him and Amy McCauley together. But the stories I heard about, and I heard he was one tough man. I heard of Coco McCauley, and I heard of another fellow called Silver McKee. And them two names always came hand in hand. So I don't know whether, I presume Eamon knew Silver McKee as well. Or I don't know Silver McKee, or I didn't know Coco. But I mean, I just always heard their names mentioned together. Two tough men, um, boxing men, but street fighting men as well. Did you know Silver McKee, Eamon? I knew you often. Uh, you know, he died in the 70s. I knew you often uh, from the market era, cattle herder. Uh, but in Eamon McKee's book, uh, he mentions my dad and says that he wanted to be an Ardoin legend just like my dad. And he states that my dad was the hardest man in Belfast. That's in Eamon McKee's book. And what was it about your dad that made him such a hard man? Was it nerve? Was it his physical strength? Uh, like, what, what was it about him? Well, it was his physical and fighting prowess. Uh, I mean, you know, as I say, he came from two two uh, great boxing families. So in horse racing terms, he would have been a thoroughbred. It was in the breeding. So he was a naturally tough guy, a hard man, but full of troubles broke out in 69. There was people said to me, he ruled the town, you know, uh, and his exploits are legendary. There used to be graffiti in Herbert Street. It says Coco rules Paris. You know, yeah. Then, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. His relationship with the parents was was infamous. <clears throat> was was legendary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they would pick fights with him. Maybe you know, sitting about uh, uh, in Flag Street, uh, you know, in, uh, in their um, headquarters or whatever, and uh, talking about Madal and Sam. Look, we can't get that's five or six of us. He's knocked out. You know, he beats us every time. You know, we'll, we'll have to get somebody really, really hard. <laughs> so the flu, the flu guy in from Germany, a regimental boxing champion. You couldn't make this up. This is like Royal Rover stuff, you know. But this is, believe me, this is really true. And there's people still alive today who witnessed it. And uh, as I say, the para Judas done with a knuckle duster, but my dad got up and my dad filled him in, <laughs> and then they respected him, revered him even, and they never bothered him after that. Um, last week when I was at the at the book launch, I said to Eamon, I said, I said, Eamon, you, you said to my wife's house one night. And he said to me, no, I didn't. And I said, no, no, no. When you were, <laughs> I said, not like that way. I said, so, so my, then later on that day, I was down with my father-in-law and he said, ah, oh, yeah. He said, Coco Macaulay, he says, he says, his son, Eamon, he stayed in our house one night. My father-in-law is Alfie Donnelly. He's from the markets. And right. his son, Eamon, he lives in Morecambe now, but apparently Hughes came back. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Eamon Tonley, I remember him, yeah. So Hughes came across on the boat from Liverpool. That's and right. Then, and then you would have stayed in my wife's house that night. That was December 1982. And we right. boxed, yeah, we boxed uh, in Irrigale. I stopped, uh, oh, what do you call me? He's a top coach now, McDermott, McDermott. I stopped him in two rounds. But uh, Tommy, Tom Tobin was on the bill. It was a good show. Hughes uh, fielded a very strong team against the Manchester Select. Uh, you're born in, is it 66, 68? Sorry, I'm... January the 4th, 1966. Okay. Um, so you're born into it uh, like a time that's just about to kind of go up. Explode, yeah. Yeah. Um, what are your recollections as a kid in North Belfast? Well, Ardoin was a small Catholic enclave, which was surrounded by larger Protestant areas. So, uh, you know, it was very much, uh, very, very hard during, during the Troubles. That, uh, Protestants used to come in, loyalists, paramilitaries, whatever, used to come in and, and uh, they called them then drive-by shootings. You know, they would have killed quite a few uh, Catholic nationalists. Uh, it was a very dangerous place. Uh, there's a few hundred people that have far down that died during the present conflict. And uh, as I say, uh, yeah, I, I knew quite a lot of the people who had died. One of your best friends? 
One of my best friends, Danny Barrett, was shot dead in April, July 1981. Uh, he was shot dead from the observation post on Flag Street. It was the British Army. Shot him dead. He was sitting on a wall. This was during the hunger strikes. There had been a little bit of sporadic ratting that day, but it was all quiet when the shots rang out and Danny was, was killed 15 years of age. A cold-blooded murder and nothing less. And then the stop, the came to stop the ambulance on the way down to the middle of the and he died. Yes. Another five of my best mates, John Todd, was shot dead too in 1991. And uh, yes, Ardoin was very, uh, was the worst hit, for the shadow of a doubt, was the worst hit area of, of the north of Ireland during the present conflict. And you didn't really escape uh, the trouble yourself. Like you were more than willing, not, not necessarily the troubles, but you were more than willing to cause havoc in your young and teenage years. Well, two, two of our favourite games was uh, hopping lorries and chasing rubber bullets. I mean, we were just kids. We, we would have started a rat throwing stones and bricks and bottles at the army just to get them to, you know, to open up with their uh, rubber bullets. And uh, when they started shooting rubber bullets, we would have been fighting each other to try and get one to sell to Leah Marigan or British tourists who would often be in the area. So that was just a way of life. That was just normality for us. Uh, in terms of sport, in, in terms of sport, you started out as a promising footballer, uh, wanted to represent Northern Ireland and wanted to go all the way. But you were kind of marked to be a boxer from day one, weren't you? I suppose with that pedigree, like how much was Rinty talked about in your house? How much was your grandfather talked about in your house? And what did your dad want you to do? Because that's always important. Well, my dad certainly didn't want me to box. He wanted me to stay at the football because his father, my grandfather, Harry McCauley, died of pugilistic dementia at 58. And I don't ever remember McGrandy being a well man. He was always very unwell. He couldn't speak. And uh, he was only 58 years of age. He was Northern Ireland area fellow with champion. And he had a tough rivalry with Jim McCann. My granda also represented his country as an amateur. Had a good one against England. So he was more than just an average boxer. He was quite a good boxer. But in them days when you won, when you boxed the Northern Ireland title, it was over 15 rounds. Yeah. So he won that against Billy Donnelly and then he lost it to his rival, Jim McCann. So, yep, McGranda, my dad seen what happened with his father and didn't want it to happen to me. My father won a few Irish titles as a kid and then drifted away from the sport. My uncle, Sean, my dad's brother, brought him back to the Holy Family and he knocked the guy out in Dungannon. And uh, I distinctly remember this. My dad used to have a scrapbook. And the write-up used to be in the scrapbook. It's, it's, it's tattooed on my brain. My dad knocked the guy out and the glove exploded. The horse hair came flying out of the glove. The guy was out cold and uh, he was covered in horse hair. And that maybe uh, lulled my father into a state of false security because he thought he, you know, he just had to touch for anybody and he would knock him out. So he entered the Ulster Seniors and it was one of the uh, Sampy brothers beat him. By boxing clever and being smart and sticking and moving and, you know, because if you'd have stopped still long enough and my dad had a hit you, he was definitely a very, very powerful puncher. Mm. And Rindy Monaghan said that my dad was the hardest puncher he ever seen and said my dad should have been a millionaire, that he had talent to burn. My dad was also a great snooker player, billiards player, dart player, you know, he really excelled at sports. What did he do as a job? Uh, he was... Uh, Hud carrier, bricklayer, labourer, uh, bricky. Uh, yeah, yeah. He worked as a minder in uh, London for a newly millionaire, Ali Morgan. You know, so he, uh, yeah. He did a bit of everything. And he, he, he also, he pulled a woman out of the river, saved her life. and uh, At the Queen's Bridge, yeah. That's right in the River Lagan. It was 1973, I believe. And uh it was one of the coldest days on record. She was drowning and nobody was jumping in. So my dad just jumped in and saved our life. Um, your dad also, like he, he, he suffered for it as well. He was shot by Republicans and loyalists, wasn't he? As well as the scraps yeah. he had. Yeah, yeah. With, as well it as be, the scraps he had with the paratroopers and stuff. The IRA beat his hands with a hammer, multiple fractures and lacerations uh, because he was accused of pushing a Republican's wife which he didn't, which everybody knows now that he didn't. And uh, that, that, that was dreadful. Uh, and he's, that was an alcoholic. You know, and why the Hans, they were scared of comebacks for Hans. They never fought him 
Madan Naksumani Aramian out, you know, Enak more out than what the British Army did. And that would often bring them into, you know, whatever with them, you know. Jim, you like, you hear these stories and did you know about, like, you've heard obviously the reputation of Coco Macaulay. And like, I know from speaking to you in previous conversations, you know, you had, you're kind of beefs with the law as a teenager, as a young man and stuff like that. But do you, what do you think when you hear these stories? Yeah, they, look, they're very sort of similar to like what I'd say my life growing up in Dublin. I mean, like, like, like you know, I've been, you know, it, it's well known. I've been shot. I've been stabbed. You know, I went around in gangs. I was, you know, I was in prison. I don't know how many times. I, I was in every prison in Ireland, North and South, I suppose, um, for fighting and getting into trouble. What's it like to get shot? Uh, well, I tell you, like it. When I got shot, I I came out of a nightclub and um, they ran over him, had the gun at my head, and ordered me out of the car. And I just I got out of the car and they had the gun at my stomach, and I grabbed the gun. It was a double barrel shotgun, and I pushed it down, and it went off, and I got a barrel in each leg. Um, but I mean, like I ran back inside, and then they fired another shot after me. Um, I went to hospital. I signed myself out a few six days later. I went back to work the following week and threw the same fight out again because I'd be very stubborn like that. I know when I left the nightclub that night, I was followed home in a car, and uh, I wouldn't. Uh, when I went to pull into the cully sac, the car was waiting in the cully sac. Sorry. So I didn't drive in the cully sack. I reversed the car back. So I could have went three different ways. But they just came out in the car and more or less looked and said, like, you know, you, listen, you can change your car. Because I had I had gone to walk in a different fella's car thinking I won't go in my own car. I'll go in a different car. But they more or less just came out and said, listen, it doesn't matter you change your car. And that's like, that's where you live. We know where you live. It wasn't my mother's house. It was my own house at the time. And, uh, but I mean, like, that's just, that's like, that was Dublin gangland, whereas like, which is very similar to Northern Ireland paramilitary gangland, you know, because there's a lawlessness on each side. There's different different reasons for them, but there's a lawlessness there that you know you can just you can be taken out in the blink of an eye. That doesn't give a fuck how good of a fighter you are, how handy you are with your fists. You can't stop bullets. Is that why you think you were so comfortable in, I guess, Eamon's Belfast? I I tell you why I was in um so I was in Dublin. I turned pro when I was twenty three. I was meant to turn pro when I was twenty one. But I ended up at twenty one I was too wild and I was too much I was messing about too much and I had too much on and blah de blah. So I turned pro with them when I was twenty three and I moved to Belfast. So I went up and stayed not too far from Eamon. I sat on the Antrim Road there in Atlantic Avenue. That was my first place. And when I moved to Belfast, I got a, a fresh, a fresh go at life. Because no one knew me up there. No police were hassling me. You know what I mean? Like no one knew me. So I mean like you weren't you weren't tarnished with any brush or anything like that. So when I went up there, I got a fresh lease of life. So I could start again. And then when I started coming back down to the south, like it was a couple of years later and like so like most of the hassle that saw the gone away because you weren't there you know so i mean boxing boxing gave me a, gave me a, a second shot at life yeah Eamon, when you know all these stories about your dad obviously a local legend you're gonna hear the stories back but did you have the sort of relationship with your dad where he'd tell you these this stuff like oh i got an awful scrape there last night Eamon, or whatever it was or did you have to kind of hear them secondhand from maybe the other kids on the neighborhood or at school or something like that yeah uh unfortunately um my dad ended up with a bit of a drink problem and uh, I didn't have a great relationship with him, to be honest with you, because I didn't like the way he was treating my mother. But I never walked a mile in his shoes. I never come through the shootings and the bombings. And every bar he would have went into, he was tortured. He was, you know, I never left him alone. So, but uh, unfortunately, uh, I didn't have a great relationship with my father. So I wouldn't have heard the stories firsthand, nor did he ever really hear my dad bragging or, you know, uh, talking about him in the house. Uh, I would have heard them from other people. And the stories about my dad are legendary. The stories, there's thousands and thousands of stories about my dad. Uh, 
there's stories about him fighting Lally McLean in, in London when my dad lived in London in the 80s. That's just a rumor. Right. There's stories about him fighting with a guy. What did you call a guy, the wrestler, who was in Alphitas and Pat? Pat was a Pat Bob. There was rumors about him fighting him. He didn't fight him either. You know? But when, when you're a legend, people start telling lies about you. And, you know, they become legendary stories, folklore. Yeah. And the stories about my dad are thousands and thousands of stories about me. They're incredible. You know, if I listened to half them stories, my dad must have been fighting seven days a week, 20 times a day. Yeah, absolutely. When you, once you began um, boxing and picked up a bit of success, you left the football behind. I think you had an unsuccessful trial with Northern Ireland. Is that, is that correct? And you concentrated more fully on boxing? Well, I, I scored, there was a trial match and... Uh, uh, my team, there was enough players to play off against each other, so uh, my team won 4-2 and I scored two goals and featured heavily in the game. And the other two lads who came from St. Gabriel's with me for the trial said to me that I was a certificate pick, which I knew I was, but for some reason or other I wasn't picked. So my school, St. Gabriel's, thought it was because it was Kelly. So I quit playing football at the end disgust. And started boxing. Much to my father's consternation, he went and seen two youth leaders, Mickey Brennan and Hugo McGee, to get them to try and change my mind to get me back to the football. He didn't want me to box because of what he's seen with his father. But once you did and he started picking up success, did it? Did he give oh, it he was 100%, yeah, yeah, he was 100% behind me and supportive of me. Yeah, yeah, very much so. From your father having such a storied career, boxing the paratroopers, I think there's a story about him. He's the only person that the paratroopers ever had to pay protection money to. But <laughs> yeah, the IRA paid him protection money too. <laughs> but you end up um, entering, you're kind the of, ABAs. you're moved to England, you, you fight in the ABAs. I think you're the second guy from Belfast to win the ABAs. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. After Jack Garland. Yeah. And you fight a paratrooper in the final. Like, what are the odds? What are the odds? <laughs> Uh, although I, we had Tommy Tolan on a few weeks ago, he was telling us about his fights with paratroopers as well. Oh was, yeah, yeah. Uh, Tommy, Tommy's a very good friend of mine. Yeah, a lot of amusement there. But um, oh, Tommy's yeah, so, a tough, tough guy. So 1985, a month before you know McGuigan frenzy takes over Loftus Road, you're in the ABA final. I think BBC won 10 million people watching this. Yeah, as well. that's right. Yeah, and uh, you you fight against Carl Crook, a paratrooper in the final. Yeah. tough man. He's he's already got an amateur pedigree. Is he, I don't, I'm not sure what age you were. I suppose I could do the maths. Like, you're a teenager still. At 19. 19, yeah. And, um, yeah. My and first he, senior, my first senior year, my first year in the seniors as a boxer. And you watch the fight, you can tell he's good. He, he, he's, yeah. he nearly chins you a couple of times. And, you know, you take a couple, I think you take two counts in the round. I give him a count, then he give me two counts. And it's one of the most explosive rounds you'll ever see. Yeah, it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And, uh, if you, if anyone was watching amateur boxing that night on, on BBC One, they be, would have become a fan of it, I'm sure. Well, he was three um, times combined services champion. He had been in, he had been in the, uh, the army, the, the parachute regiment, but he was no longer a member of the parachute regiment when he boxed me. But and he, was no, he was no longer a champion after uh, you knocked him out as well. He had been beaten the final the year before by Alex yeah. Dixon. He lost the closest season. That was Olympic year, the big one. But, I mean, you couldn't make it up. You know, the pressure on me was enormous. If I had lost, it'd still be getting it cast up to me in Ardoin. Ah, oh, you let that para beat you. You <laughs> know, the, I mean, the pressure I was under was enormous. You know, the irony. And the, the, the thing was, the next day, my father was watching a rerun of it in the house on Home Dean Gardens, Ardoin. It was around about May time, so it was sunny. So my dad had the front door open and the living room door open. So he's watching a rerun, the police walk in with a summons for my dad. Like I caught up and watching the fight. <laughs> and my dad says, that's my son. Which one is he? The one with the blue shorts. So they were oohing and on and getting involved with the fight. And uh, when I knocked the guy out, they were asking my dad all sorts of questions about me. And then they left. About five minutes later, they returned rather sheeplessly. They had forgot to give my dad a summons. <laughs> but my dad was long gone. He'd put his shoes and slippers on and uh, had uh, went out the back door. Happy days. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Did you when you returned home from that? Uh, I can only imagine the moment that you shared. Right. Did well, like if if your relationship with your dad obviously was up and down through oh, your yeah, life. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Did you get Did you get that moment of celebration? Of oh yeah, he was very very proud of me. But see, I still lived in London then. Okay. And uh, yes, he was. You know, uh, he was very 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 proud of me. He really really was. And uh, yeah. That, that was the moment. 
So was he was he more proud that you won the ABA title or that you bet the parrot? <laughs> Both. <laughs> Both. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I got a jan. Uh, I got a big telegram from them that night, and uh, there was a party back at my friend's house. That, that was a great, that was a wonderful night. And Carl Crook at Dillis State, Carl Crook rang me about three weeks ago, like, like the paratrooper that I beat. He's busting to come over here, but I, I couldn't bring him in the Ardoin. I could maybe yeah. meet him in the town or something, but I couldn't bring him in the Ardoin. We all the hurt and pain that the Paris caused the, the people in my community. You know, I have to be sensitive to learning. So a lot of people are still suffering the hands look in the army. Yeah. But I would certainly meet him in the town. And unfortunately, Carl Carl's father murdered his mother. Uh, his mother had admitted about an, an affair she'd had 20, 25 years previously. But the father could never let it go. And every time he got drinking him, he always cast it up and wanted more details. And he eventually strangled Carl's mother and then tried to kill himself. But he was rescued. He, he done six years in prison. So I pray for Carl Crook. And he went on to become as a professional. He went on to become British and Commonwealth champion. Defended his belts five times. Fought twice for the European title. Was number five lightweight in the world. Flying. Yeah. Good, Jim, good, you, good pedigree. Did you fight any servicemen yourself, Jim, in your career? No, I fought a couple of Irish. Uh, Irish army guys. Didn't fight any British army guys. Um, what about Gardaí? Yeah, well, I we were only talking about this last week. So the guards come up when I was in CIE Boxing Club and they sparred all of us one Friday. And of course, I went to town on a few of them um, because I didn't like them and I still don't like them. So on the Sunday morning, we were all going into the Garda headquarters, which is in the Phoenix Park, to, if, to spar again. And I got a phone call that morning and I uh, was just told, listen, everyone's allowed up, but Jim Rock's not welcome up, would they? And that was what the guards said. They wouldn't allow me into the barracks because I used to be in bits of trouble and they just I just didn't sit well with them, you know? And uh, so that was it. They were able to come up, but we, I was able to train with them, but I wasn't allowed to go into their club because that was the guard of barracks and that would be seen as someone like me going in there at that time, you know? So I think years miss an opportunity there to uh, the whole point of boxing is to mend fences between people, isn't it? Yeah, but at the time I was, you know, like I was young and I was unruly, I suppose, and uh, that was just like I don't, I don't mind. I never hold any grudges like that. You know what I mean? Um, but that's just the way it was back then. Uh, Kevin, yes, could me and Jim have a mutual friend and big Joe Egan? I'd, I'd done the door with you for months up in Belfast. You, you must know of Big Joe Egan, Kevin. I've met him before, yeah. yeah. I actually, now that, now that you've said it, I want to ask you a question about him, but go on, tell the your toughest, story. The toughest weight man on the planet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, me, me and Joe's great friends, and uh, I hadn't seen him for a lot of years. It was over at the Joe Kozaki fight against Jeff Lacey. And after the fight, we went out for a drink, and I'm not a big drinker. The next morning, I woke up very sick, and I walked the streets, trying to uh, deal with a hangover. And as I'm walking about randomly feeling sorry for myself, I see Joe Wigan walking towards a hotel. And I shouted, Joe, Joe, and not that. But I said, Joe, Joe, it's me, Eamon. And uh, he was about to go in and he stopped and he looked and he says, Eamon, Eamon. And then he ended up, he came towards me and gave me a big, big hug. And then he could have walked on in or just went, all right, how are you doing? You know, and then he says, come on to the car here. And he got me a copy of his book. And he says, come on into the hotel. And he introduced me to Joe Kils- I know, um, what do you call him? Uh, the boxer, Richie Woodhall, Glenn oh, Story. Yeah. He introduced me to all them guys and made a big fuss. There was queues of lanes of people waiting to get their autographs. But Joe gave me such a big build-up that then they all started wanting my autograph. <laughs> and one minute I'm hungover feeling sorry for myself. The next minute I'm, I, I, I'm in a big lane, you know, signing autographs. And I said to myself, the guys back at the hotel are never going to believe this story I'm going to tell them. <laughs> but they're yeah. fair play to Joe. Yeah, he's Can a I, good lad. But Neil, Neil, Neil Sinclair was telling me that when Tyson boxed in Scotland, uh, Neil was close to Mike Tyson. He was only maybe five feet away. But Joe Egan was there and Tyson was telling everybody, this guy's the toughest white man on the planet. I could never put him down in sparring. Now, you know, so Neil heard that with his own ears. Neil told me that. Well, look, Joe Egan boxed out of Denor Avenue, Denor Boxing Club. So I believe it 100%. 
tough guys over there. That's for sure. Right. Yeah, Tony Tony Mann trained them over there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, after beating Carl Crook, um, you get something quite unusual, Eamon. You get a signing on fee from Barney Eastwood to turn professional. I think you're wooed a little bit at the Barry McGuigan against Eusebio Pedrosa world title fight at Loftus Road and turn professional after that. You know, world at your feet. Um, um, what was BJ's vision for your career? Uh, he thought I was going to be the next Barry. He was looking for someone to come along. That's you know going to going to be you know pick up the baton from Barry, and uh, he said that I was the man, and he loved big punchers Barney Eastwood, and he seen me knocking out Carl Crook in the ABA final, and I was living in London at the time and sharing a flat with a guy called Paddy Gallagher. Paddy's father John was doing the security for Barney Eastwood at the uh, Loftus Road uh, uh, Pedrosa fight, so Paddy's father John let it slip that Paddy was sharing a flat with me. So Barney's would give him free tickets for to get to me to come to the fights. That was his first inter- introduction uh, to me, but it wasn't his last. I, I knocked him back about four or five times uh, because I wanted to do things in the amateurs that the money can't buy. You know, go to the Europeans, Worlds, the Olympics. And uh, that's, uh, that's tough now for me. You know, uh, I was only 19 and there was so much more I could have done in the amateurs. Well, you look at the Olympics that you foregoed in order to turn professional, Seoul 1988. Yeah. It's up, it's up there with some of the most corrupt Olympic games that have taken place, particularly like the boxing tournament. You know, I think uh, Billy Walsh was harshly treated over there, among others, but we saw what happened with Roy Jones Jr. Yeah, there, were other, right. there were others as well, scandalous robberies that were only really bettered or equaled in Rio 2016. But, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe you dodged a bullet there. Well, the, the main aspect, the, the reason why I went with Barney Eastwood was Barry McQuiggan. Mm. That's why I went with Barney Eastwood. I knew we were in Sparn, and we would have got great Sparn. It was a great camp. Barry at that time talked to me for an hour about how great Barney Eastwood was. And then the later what happened with him too. Was Bar- but Barry was one of the main reasons, or probably the main reason I went with Barney's, Barney Eastwood. I got a great offer too now. When you think I got £6,000 saying non-fee and £1,000 for each of my first eight fights, and uh, I got driving lessons, I got uh, he got me a job. Uh, when you think of Barry McGuigan, Paul Hodginson, dear boy Macaulay, they didn't get saying non-fees, only promises. It just shows you how highly Barney Eastwood thought of me. I watched some interviews with you from, I think, Taken. They're on YouTube. You've got a very active YouTube channel. I'd suggest any listener who hasn't checked out Eamon McCauley's YouTube channel to do so immediately. Do it yesterday. But anyway, Eamon, there's some good interviews on it. You're speaking in 87, 88, I think 89 or thereabouts. And you just come across incredibly mild-mannered, really modest. And you speak in your, you know, the intro to your book about low, low self-esteem. Well, you did not come across as a brash boxer type at all. And I'm not saying boxers need to reach a, a meet a cliche because I've spoken to far too many that there's no such thing really as the brash boxer that people who are outside the sport really kind of identify with. But you particularly came across as soft-spoken. Right, I appreciate that. Humble, uh, yes. Absolutely. So much, you know, Muhammad Ali, I mean, you know, you would have called him brash, but I mean, he, he could, could have got away with it. You know, his, his wit, his, uh, he was wonderful. He was, you know, there was nobody like Muhammad Ali, but there were so many uh, impersonators came along, you know. And I would rather see, in the old days, the boxers got in the ring and they went over to their opponent and shook hands, you know, before they came together to touch gloves. You know, you, you look at Rinty's fight with Jackie Patterson and, and a lot of others. It's, you know, there has to be a grudge element now. They build it up as if there really is a grudge. So it's all nonsense. And then the, at the end of the fight, they're hugging and kissing. And But no, it's, it's, it's not my way of fighting, you know. Yeah. Well, oftentimes it's the guys at the top level and I guess they're at the top and you got to say, well, whatever it takes, you know, whatever it takes to get up to this yeah. level of fighting. Well, you look at Kel Brook and Amir Khan there. I mean, they built that up to be a real, real, real grudge, a massive, massive big grudge in back years. And then after the fight, the two of them are hugging and kissing and laughing and joking because they've made a, a, a small fortune. It's sort of con on the public too, you know. Yeah, you weren't buying that rivalry. No, I don't, no, no, no. Boxing today isn't the game I fell in love with 40 odd years ago. You know, the proliferation of all the belts, first of all, is one of the uh, problems I have. But, yeah. Yeah. 
Can you talk to us uh, like about your professional career? I think, you know, you went out and you won six fights in a row uh, before your first loss came. And uh, what do you attribute to your first loss uh, to Andrew Furlong at the, at the uh, Ulster Hall? Because that wouldn't have been in the, in the, in the plan. No, no, no. Uh, it was a last minute substitute. I was to fight a guy called Dougie Monroe. And uh, Andy Furlong came on board uh, the day before at the, at the press conference. Barney Eastwood pulled me to the side and, you know, says that they've been trying to get me somebody. It wasn't easy to get somebody. But this guy was willing to take it, but he wanted to run a few things past me. I says, yes, Model A. He says, one, he's a Southpaw. And two, I think he says he was a late welterweight, uh, you know. But he never weighed in with all the other boxers on the day of the fight. I'm not worried about that anyway. I mean, I, you know, I, I, you know, what beat me, uh, I damaged my ankle. I damaged my ankle a week before when I was going out walking with my wife, Karn. My, my future wife, Karn, this would have been 87. We were walking around the zoo. But I, I went over my ankle doing a balancing act in the cribby. And uh, we on road. Showing off, and that that uh, it, I should have went back and got the, my ankle and ice and got it all fixed up. Instead of that, I went on to hobbled around the zoo and got a taxi back before I got ice on it. But by then it was too late. Uh, that's what happened. I twisted my ankle the week before. It reoccurred in the fight in the first round. The fight's on YouTube, I think. In the first round, I go over on my ankle and you see me pointing to the canvas, and that's my way of saying I've hurt my ankle. And I just couldn't plant my feet and put on in punches because my ankle was uh, very, very badly swollen. I don't want to make excuses. Andy Furlong was a southpaw. He was never really shown against southpaws. And he was the worst type of southpaw. He was a counterpuncher. He went on to fit Robin Reed and took Robin Reed the distance. He was a world super middleweight champ. So uh, Andy Furlong was five foot 11. Uh, uh, but there you go. That's not true. Jim, no. did you ever uh, injure yourself while trying to impress a lady? I did, of course. Um, actually, I had my brother was just home from the Foreign Legion and he was just home for a week. And I was letting him and a girl, a girl into the back of my car when, when they come over with the guns. And it just happened to be that a friend of mine, an older friend, but it was his daughter, and he didn't know <laughs> I was with his daughter at the time because I wasn't, I was with a different girl, but going with a different girl, I was just we were off for the night, as you do, because that's what doormen do. I'm sure Raymond would have a few stories of that sort of thing. Whatever, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it had been too long. I'd been on a long unbeaten streak, yeah, I just didn't know how to beat, and it was just an absolute shocker. I should have come back. And I did try to come back, and uh, I was the fight in the, the boy Macaulay, Fidel Bassa, second fight in February 1988. But a few days before the show, Barney Eastwood pulled me off the show. And to this day, I, I don't know why. And and that's when I started to get a bit depressed. I started to not go to the gym. And then, um, yeah, one thing lady and another. But the, the Barney Eastwood gym... Uh, they were wonderful times. There were, I mean, there's some amazing fighters. Barney Eastwood uh, got us some great sparring. He brought me to Los Angeles, Panama, Colombia. I sparred about 15 world champions. Hemi Garza, Antonio Spargoza, Marcus Villazana, McQuiggan, quite a few others. So everything was there for me to succeed. It was my fault. I'm not blaming anybody else. You know, but uh, yep. And I say- lost my confidence. I lost my self-esteem. Yeah. And uh, I probably had a breakdown. Yeah, it took me ask. years and years and years to recover and to get my confidence back to where it is now. Yeah, because we, we say... Um, it destroyed in, me. In the past, we say, yeah, I was depressed after that, but I suppose we have a better understanding these days. Like you, you, you were genuinely depressed, do you think? And you had, like to say you had a breakdown after that. Yeah. What, what, in what way did that manifest itself? Just staying away from the gym or did it hurt your personal life or how did it... What happened? Uh... I just felt as though I had sort of let people down. I couldn't believe it. I thought for sure I was going to be world champion. And so did everybody in the gym. Bobby McAllister, my coach, said to me, I mean, you're the best out of all of them. And I was like, you know, tell me something I don't already know. I had went from having no confidence to being overconfident. But, the, 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 you know, I just wasn't used to getting beat. I had been on a long 29 unbeaten streak amateur and pro. I hadn't lost in 29 fights. And, uh, yeah, it devastated me. 
And I, as I say, if Barney Eastwood hadn't, you know, could have, should have, would have, you know, if Barney Eastwood hadn't pulled me off that show, and to this day, I don't know why he did, but I've had to come back with a good win, you know, who knows, but yeah. that's that's the way it goes. Yeah, because fight, fighters lose, like it's part it's part of it. And yeah. I mean, uh-huh. if, you, if you're going to, it shouldn't be, it, it couldn't be, it shouldn't be devastating to a career to lose on the way up, but especially if you're injured. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's, yeah. And I had the guy down the second round, nearly had him out. You know, it was a winnable fight, but I couldn't stand at the, at the end of the third round. Did you did you not have anybody, or did you have anybody to talk to you, to, to make you see clear at the time? Because it sounds like you're under a lot of pressure from yourself. You're under a lot of pressure from the gym, from the from the hype that people were telling you, from the fact that uh, Eastwood had signed you for so much money. Was your dad able to lend an ear and say, listen, Eamon, you know, you'll, my, you'll be okay? Me and my dad hadn't spoke for two years. And after the fight, Dave Boy McCauley was on straight after me. He was fighting a guy called Roy Thompson, uh, who was one of his sparring partners for when he fought Bassa. Uh, he was on straight after me. So the, the dressing room was empty. It was on my own, basically, when my dad walked into the dressing room. And I hadn't spoke for two years. And uh, I was sitting down. He sat down beside me. And, and then I, I broke down and cried in his shoulder. So I would imagine for my father, that was one of the hardest things and all the hard things he had come through. And he was a hard man of all hard men. That must have been one of the hardest things for him. The emotional side of, you know, for me to break down on, a, you know, so, yeah. Yeah. And and probably difficult to articulate to each other what you're going through, whereas it's maybe a gesture crying on the shoulder. But are you having the conversations that you maybe in high, you'd love you'd love to probably be able to go back? And have a conversation now, knowing what you know now. And then Barney Eastwood rang me up. He wanted to match me against Gary Pappy Muir, fully Irish. Well, they're with the title. Sorry, the Irish slave with the title. But I told him that my future now lay at Super Featherweight because I was always a late labourite. And that was another thing I regret. That could have, uh, re, you know, uh, re- revamped me because uh, Pappy Muir was just an ordinary sort of labourite. Yeah. So I said no to that. And he also sort of thought I was getting my own back on him dropping me from the Macaulay Bassa rematch. So it was a bit childish, a bit immature, and I was only ever hurting myself and nobody else. But yeah. Barney Eastwood was a great manager. He was a great guy. I had an awful lot of time for him. Uh, I got on with them all. I got on with Steve Collins. I got on with Card Fromm. I got on with Barry McGuigan. I've stayed in Barry's house a few times in Fabersham and Kent. I seem to get on with them all. Jim, what would your, if you could go back in time, what would your advice be to Eamon after losing his first professional bout and seeming to really struggle with it? What would you, what would you say to him? Well, I don't know because you see, Eamon obviously turned pro in a sort of a blaze of glory. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he got the big side on fee. There was big things expected of him. Like when I turned pro, there was like no side on fee. There was nothing expected of me at all. So when I had my first, my first loss, it was after, I had seven wins and I fought Ensley Bingham. Um, well, a good fighter yeah and I thought I was keeping him like on 10 days notice and I mean like and they robbed me like I mean like I, I won 5 of the four six rounds and they stopped the fight in the 7th round I mean like all I done was I took a few digs the same as I took off in the 4th 5th and 6th round he came out like a bull for 30 seconds and then he was knackered and I'd win the next 2.5 minutes so they stopped the fight in the seventh round. There's only one more round left because he was only at the going 12 rounds against Winky Wright. So there's no way they could have the British champion oh. and intercontinental champion beaten by a seven-fight novice. Right. So, I mean, like, for me to get beaten by Enzi Bingham, like, I was I was annoyed about it, but it, it didn't bother me. I mean, but a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of positives there too to take out of that. An awful yeah, lot but, of positives. Yeah, but just an awful world title. Yeah, but you don't take the positives because I know, it's, I know. It, it's a loss. Yeah. So, I mean, like, you know, you've seven fights, you're unbeaten, and then all of a sudden you get beat. Yeah. So, I mean, like, whatever about all the positives, you you can think about them now. But at the time, yeah. like, it, it's a, it doesn't give a shit what the positives are. The loss is the loss, and it's on your record. Yeah. But I didn't have the fanfare, let's say, that you would have had. Right. That people were expecting big things. Everything I done and every fight I won was a bonus for me because right. I was I was a nobody in the boxing field. Yeah. So I mean, like anything I won was oh Jesus, he's had to win another fight. It wasn't that people expected me to win. 
Right. Well, a similar, you know I mean? similar, a similar thing happened to a friend of mine, Neil Sinclair. Neil was given the big hullabaloo. He won the, uh, the Commonwealth Games. He was. Medal. That's exactly he it. turned pro in a place of publicity with Barry Hearn. Barry Hearn said after his pro debut, this guy's going to be a world champion, I'm sure of it. So that's yeah. hard to live up to all that. And then Neil had a shattering defeat. That's and right. then Neil took it very, 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 very bad. So me and Neil's very similar. And me and Neil's part over 100 rounds. And, uh, yeah, Neil, Neil uh, uh, you know, there should be some sort of counselling or, you know, a sports, uh, you know, uh, somebody to step in there to help. Well, I think sometimes that, that that a lot of fighters, they believe their own hype. Yeah. And they yeah. believe the press and they believe the things that are being wrote about them. You know, the, the press will tell you how fucking great you are and how well you're doing and all that. And then when there is that fall, some people take it a lot worse than others. Like, I never took a loss. I I, I didn't care. Like, I mean, like, if I lost, I lost. Whether it was a bad decision or not, it didn't bother me. I mean, like, boxing wasn't my yeah. be-all and end-all of my life. And everybody you know, loses. Had, everybody loses. Everybody loses. But, you see, I seem to think that a lot of fighters, they're fighters and they're nothing else. They put everything into the fighting and they don't, um, have a plan B. I always have my plan B. Like I always have my business. I always had property yeah. to fall back on. I yeah. always done every. I always done other things that I always said myself. This fighting doesn't work out for me. I'll go to plan B, or I'll have plan C, or I'll have plan D. And I always had other things, other arms and the fires. Yeah. Always had other things to fall back on. You know, and that for me, I wasn't. You know, whatever I got out of boxing was a bonus for me. I didn't. I stacked all my eggs in one basket. Oh, I know. <laughs> I, was I, the, I was the opposite of you, Jim. Oh, I know. That's what I'm I had enough and else only the boxing. And the same with Sinclair. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's 100% correct. Yeah. And Neil's doing wonderful now. And so am I. So praise the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> no, Neil's a great guy. I remember Neil. So I was fighting, obviously, at light middleweight. Neil was at welterweight. Then Neil... Um, when after he had his breakdown, when he came back, he came back as a light middleweight. Yeah, he and came he back with a, John Brainy. He left. Jerry no, 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 no. Before that, just before that, he went came back as a light middleweight with Jerry Story. Right. Because he he put in the paper that he would love to fight me. Right. So Neil was fighting in the Ulster Hall, and it was his comeback fight. And I went there, and I went down to the ring after it, and I went down to have a popper. Now, whether it was whether yes. it was with gloves or without gloves on, I wouldn't have given a fuck at that time because that's the way I was rough and ready and blah blah. And Paul McCullough actually stepped in, and we only talked about it like we didn't talk for years. Me and Paul McCullough went because I was living in in one of in, in Francie Francie McCullough's house at the time. Francie was a good friend of mine, right. so I didn't want to particularly have a with Paul, but we very nearly came to blows because he was picking up for Sinclair. Right. And so for years, me and Paul, like, we just had to look to each other, but we didn't say it to each other. Like, he knew I was a sort of a, I was well able on the street. I knew he was well able on the street, apart from, and he was very good in the ring. Oh, so we always was very good in the street, yeah. Yeah. So we only talked about this at Paul's, at Paul Senior's wake when his dad died. Yeah. I was talking to him and this came up in conversation and I said, bloody blah, blah. We had, he said, Jim, I've never mentioned that to anyone. And I said, I know. I said, neither did I. I said, but like, it did happen years ago. Yeah, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. That was over, that was over Sinclair because I wanted to boost Sinclair <laughs> right. outside the ring. But again, then we became, <laughs> sta then we became stable mates and we became good stable mates because we, we spared thousands and I mean thousands right. of rounds together. Right. Right. Day in, day out. You know, he's a terrific fella. You know what I mean? He's, very, he's a very soft fella. He is indeed. He is indeed. I sparred about 100 rounds with him. But in the last round of the last spar, I broke his nose. Did he ever oh, tell you about that? No, but, but, I, can, but, but I can see what you've fucking done. <laughs> you, you can see it. That's my work. I'm very proud of it. <laughs> just, well, listen, it's a legacy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We all need a legacy. Um, Eamon, after that, uh, after that loss, you had two years outside of the ring and you came back uh, over the years you kind of built you put five more wins on top of each other but after 1994 you didn't fight again and I think you boxed was that the Ulster Hall that night in 1994 and I think you might have opened the card although I'm not sure I was just King, looking at King's Hall King's Hall pardon me, pardon me. Eamon Lockern 
Lockburn, yes, Box, that's right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Alessandro Duran. He and, um, did you open the card? Oh, I opened the card. Here, yeah. Yeah. And was that for you just like... Agnominious. Yeah, Agnominious. And I had became vegetarian then. And I lost an awful lot of weight. I, I, I was very gaunt, uh, sickly. Yeah, when I look back at the videos of them fights, I'm shocked at how skinny I look. And uh, I became vegetarian. I'm vegan today, but I, I have a good dad. I still run. I run marathons. I'm fit. I'm a fit guy. But then I wasn't getting, uh, what's the word I'm looking? Nutrients. Su- supplements. And nutrients, supplements. Yeah. I wasn't, uh, things that I was losing, iron, calcium, protein, whatever. I wasn't getting them anywhere else. It took me years to learn about a balanced vegetarian diet. So what happened was, that's why I packed it in. I became vegetarian and lost my strength and lost my power and, and lost my confidence in myself. And I didn't realize, you know, and my dad knew, my dad kept saying, my dad knew what it was because I wasn't eating meat. But uh, in a way, he was right. But in a way, I mean, you've got vegan powerlifters now. You've got vegan, uh, you know, Novak Djokovic, Serena Williams, you know. If you do it right, which I do now, you yeah. can still retain your strength. But I, I, I stuff I wasn't eating. I didn't eat eggs, didn't eat fish, chicken, red meat. And that's what happened with me. That's why I packed it in because I lost my confidence, because I lost my power, lost my strength. And I knew it was only a matter of time before somebody was going to come along and beat me badly. Yeah, and, and they keep coming. Yeah. Um, Eamon, in the uh, kind of intro to the book that I read out at the start, taken from your words on, on your YouTube video about it, you mentioned um, your brother's suicide, which you can write about but not talk about. So I'll respect your wishes if you don't want to speak about it. Um, is that is it you don't want to talk about it? Uh, not really. It's just some. No, not uh, really. No, no. I'll, I'll move on. Uh, I'll move on. That's yeah, no problem. Yeah. Hey, uh, my, brother, add- my brother, my brother, Paul was one of my biggest fans. Yeah. My brother Paul loved me boxing. I will ask. Though, he was a great guy. I will ask about uh, your dad because he's the inspiration for this book, "Fighting to Find Peace." Um, what became of him? Well, uh, him right up until the end. He took a mini stroke, and it ended up he lay in my mother's living room in a bed there for about. Five, six years. Uh, he had to be fed through intravenously through uh, a wee thing that went into his stomach. Cataphoros. Yeah, something like that. They were able to give him fluid and medicine through that. He couldn't eat anything solid. Uh, Stanley Corbett, one of Darren Corbett's father, uh, who, who is our hero. Stanley was the only one of his mates really called, continuously called. Uh, there was other people who would have drank with my dad and who would have come into our house when my mother was at work and used my mother's house as a drinking den, you know, when my dad was able-bodied. But when my dad was sick, none of them ever came to see him when he was lying in the, the living room. Uh, he had grown his usefulness for him. But yeah, uh, my dad had a, an amazing life, a very, very brutal life. Yeah, I told you about some guy following him in the toilets in Camden Town, an American guy, and there was an altercation and my dad knocked him out. And my dad walked out of the toilets and walked out of the bar. And the guy died. I don't know whether he had a heart attack or whether it was a head injury or whether, you know, he choked in his own vomit. I don't know. But the guy died. But my dad had to come back home then. And uh, up until the last breath he took, he could have been uh, done with murder. Or death. He, 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 wasn't, he wasn't charged for the... For the he wasn't charged. Cold, no, cold no. Crime, yeah. and, and in the Camden Town Echo or the Camden Town Gazette, the police said that they were looking, because I read this, i seen this, the police were looking for a man with a Scottish or Northern Ireland accent with massive arms. That's what it said. And my, and my dad was like Popeye. Yeah, yeah. He, was only, he was only about five, six, five, six and a half, but he was so weighed and so big. You know, he was huge. You, you and him had a, had obviously had a like a fraught and up and down relationship. Probably but still, n- yeah. Never came close to blows, or never yeah. came close. I knew, I, I knew my capabilities. Yeah, <laughs> you don't want to tangle with that man. Yeah, I didn't want to tangle with that man. No, no. Even on the bed, no. Um, but by the time he passed, were you were you kind of close? Had your relationship? Yeah, ended? yeah. About the last six years, when he took ill, and when God was coming more and more to the fore in my life, because I'm a Christian, a practicing Christian, yeah. and as God is coming more and more to the fore in my life. Uh, I began to see, you know, I began to look at my dad and, uh, and think about the things he had come through, shootings and bombings and all the brutal, the brutality of it all. And uh, 
Uh, I never walked a mile in his shoes. I never come through them horrific things that he came through. So who was I to judge him? Who am I to judge anybody? So the last six years of his life, we we uh, we, we spoke every day. Well, we didn't speak because he could, sorry, he couldn't speak. He but I would speak to him. You spoke and bring a, bring a smile to his face. Yeah, good man. And I suppose was that was that maybe one of the inspirations for you? Kind of, I know you said your dad has inspired you to write this book. But was that one of the things that helped you develop as a storyteller? Because in recent years, you've you've really dedicated yourself to honoring Belfast boxing heroes um, through the mm-hmm. Belfast boxing Facebook page, which I think which you co co started. Or yes, I helped yourself. them. Yeah. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, nearly nearly ten thousand followers on that. But also yeah. the the statues that have gone up in statues. Belfast and the countless you know articles and pieces and books you've contributed to and stuff like that is yeah. has kind of you maybe you kicked it off telling a few stories like your to your dad yep. to amuse yep. them like for six years it's a long time and someone can't really give back but you know listens. Right. Uh, boxing has been a great passion in my life. And uh, when I got into boxing in 1978, after the guys, Barry McGuigan, Jerry Hamill, uh, Kenny Beatty, Hugh Russell, they all done well in the Commonwealth Games in Edmonton. That's when I started boxing on the back a lot. And uh, yeah, I, I started Band Boxing Magazine. I, I lived for boxing. I bought the ring, the KO magazine, Boxing Illustrated, started to read about all the great fighters, past and present. And uh, yes, I'm like a walking boxing encyclopedia. And I, yeah. everybody knows not to go ahead with me when it comes <laughs> to boxing history. <laughs> yeah, Jim, when you put out your book in a few years, we're gonna we're gonna get this done. What's it gonna be called? I've been asked to do a book several times, and I've always said I won't do one. Um, and simply because there'd be a lot of stuff that say, you know, if you were to be honest and write about in your book, well, you can't put them. You can't put it there or you'd end up probably behind bars. And as well as that, because you've done well outside the ring, and even inside the ring and outside the ring, I always say, like, you look at a lot of people who write books, let's say, and, you know, not going into any of their names, but like, you know, a lot of them have come up the hard way and they don't have a lot. Whereas I think that if... You know, because you've done well for yourself, if you wrote about things that you did and let's say got away with it and something like that, I think that you could have certain authorities coming after you because you have something for them to take. So you can't put things in a book that'd be like you're bragging. You know, and that's that's my Colonel of Pink Panther. Yeah, yeah. Look at it. I got a um, Rock in a hard place. That's rock in a hard place. Another good. Yeah, you see that? Yeah, do indeed. Yeah. So, <laughs> Brian Peters. Brian, Brian Peters. Peters. Yeah, yeah. He got me that in America. So he's into all the cartoons and all that. He's thousands so, of comics and all that. This being but, an audio show, Jim showed us a picture of. Is it the Pink Panther, Jim? I can't really see it. It is a, it's a movie poster. Is it? Peter Sellers. Is it? Yeah, the newest pinkest, the newest pinkest Panther of all. Peter Sellers and the Pink Panther strikes again. It's the original poster. But um, Brian Peter's got it for me as a present. He always picks me up, thing, picks me up thing, things like that, you know? Can I say something, Kevin, just uh, before we... Uh, You're more than welcome, yeah. I, uh, I was going to call my book uh, Coco's Son because that's all I'll ever been known as. Amongst the older generation, they just refer to me as Coco's Son. Didn't matter what I done as a boxer. I was in North Belfast, Ardoin, whatever. I was ever been only ever been known as Coco's son. So I was very close to calling the book Coco's son. Coco's oh, my pops. That's yeah. That sounds like a cereal. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, look, um, lads. I think I think we we'll leave it there. We've I've really enjoyed hearing your story, Eamon, and. Uh, about your dad Coco and yeah, there's so much more in between and uh, so thank you very much Eamon McCauley for joining us today on the Rocky Road and Jim Rock always a pleasure enjoy that oh, milestone birthday which is upcoming oh, man. And, and I'll, I'll be reading the book while I'm in Mauritius in two weeks time that's what I'm going to read when I'm in Mauritius good man Jim and I look forward to reading your book
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.